G'day and welcome to the Doctor Who Show Presents. You know, there's a lot of Doctor Who podcasts out there, and in the past I famously compared them to rock bands for a number of different reasons. I mean, just like rock bands, some of these podcasts know one another and support one another, they listen to each other's work, sometimes they guest on it, and so on. If you're still following this analogy and not hitting the skip forward button on your iPhone, you might think of a particular podcast scene around, say, our podcast and the other Aussie podcasts like 42 to Doomsday, Flight Through Entirety, New to Who, and then expand that out to our mates in the UK like Prog to Who, The Blue Box Podcast, Complete Menagerie, uh, Crinoid Podcast, I'll explain later, Diddly Dumb, and, and more. So there's this little community, this scene, and I dare say many of you listening to this will at least listen to some of the other podcasts I just mentioned. And so I've got to say it brings me great delight to say that one of this extended community, Hayden Gribble from the Diddly Dumb podcast, has penned a book. And not his first book either, by the way. And that book is coming out on the 16th of this month, pretty much around the time you'll hear this episode. Now, the book, which is called Child Out of Time, is a memoir of sorts about a Doctor Who fan growing up in the wilderness years of the series, and that fan is, of course, Hayden, and with a cover by Doctor Who author Paul Mars and a forward by Andrew Full Circle Smith, this really is a neat thing for all of us to take a step back and applaud. It's a really interesting thing, and a labour of love, I believe, over the last couple of years. So, anyway, to do my part in letting everyone know that the book's out, find it at Amazon, folks, I've gone back to the Doctor Who show episode number two. Now, this is from February of 2016, folks, and why? Well, because I had Hayden on the show. Hayden's always fascinated me from the point of view that in Who fandom we have a bunch of people who watched the classic era, and most of us who did that have continued to enjoy New Who, I guess the notable exception being the lads at my beloved Complete Menagerie podcast, hi guys, or they're people who started with New Who, and some might have gone back to the classics, but I'd wager most haven't, even if they appreciate the history and the gravitas that, you know, it gives the new material. Everyone loved the 50th anniversary episode, for example, um, whether they'd watched the old stuff or not. But Hayden, Hayden is a bit different. He was born just as the old series was ending and then became a fan in the wilderness years, thanks initially to the TV movie, so was primed and ready to be a major fan when New Who started, just like a classic era fan, but he was still this really young guy at the time with a different story to most. And that sort of thing's really interesting to me. So I wanted to chat with him here on the show about being a younger fan who likes the classic era as a, uh, a bit of a conversation piece on this early episode. Now, interestingly, towards the end of this chat, which again happened back in 2016, Hayden mentioned some projects coming up, and one of them obviously was Child Out of Time. So it seems highly appropriate to dust off this tape and give you a taste of Hayden and I chatting about his years growing up with the show, which he's now expanded on in a major way in Child Out of Time. If you like what you hear here, maybe you'd like to go out and grab a copy again, find it at Amazon. And without any further ado, here's the chat with me and Hayden. Hello. Hey Hayden, it's Rob Irwin calling from the Doctor Who show. Is now a good time to chat? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. And and it's good because, you know, as we've discussed offline, I, I do want to chat with someone younger 
well, younger than me anyway. Uh, that's, <laughs> Easy. That's, that's not hard. Um, <laughs> who's really, really into the classic era of Doctor Who and, and, and why they're into it. Uh, so are you our man for that? Uh, I do believe I am, yes. I'm cool. the right man for the job. I knew my calling would come one day, and here it is. Good one. Well, it would have been a short interview if you said otherwise, so... <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, no. <laughs> okay. Let, let's start, though, with some background on yourself. How old are you, and where will listeners know you from in the world of Doctor Who? Uh, I'm 26 years old, and listeners will know me from my being one of the four faces of delusion on the Diddly Done podcast. Very good. And I think you also might do some uh, scribblings for a certain uh, fanzine. Oh, yes, of course. Um, for the last six years, I've sort of sporadically contributed to the Celestial Toy Room, which is the fanzine of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. I've also contributed... Um, you just opened a can of worms here now, Rob. I'm just going <laughs> to spiel off everything. That's what um, I'm best at. <laughs> I've also contributed short stories and uh, features to Doctor Who Online, which led to me being interviewed on BBC News about the departure of Matt Smith back in 2013. I've seen that, yeah. All right, so now with your pedigree established, let's let's get into this topic I want to explore. And, and the reason I want to explore it is because when I was young, when I was growing up in the 80s, I would look at Doctor Who and I would right. think, oh, this is so daggy. This is so embarrassing to show other people like i love it you know i i am absolutely adoring this but it, oh i don't think i can show this to you i was i was embarrassed of it at times and as i've gotten older i've looked at people younger than me who get into it and i think gosh what do you see in it like i know <laughs> I, know, I know what i liked but what what do you see in it because you've grown up with star wars or you've grown up with whatever movies that have come since or tv shows that have come since and so mm. i guess my opening huge question is how did you get into doctor who Doctor Who, I think, had always been there, but it was quite subliminal. I do have very, very, very faint memories of being about, oh God, probably about three or four years old and seeing John Pertwee being attacked by uh, Morris dancers on television. And of course, I knew John Pertwee primarily as Wurzel Gummidge, mm-hmm. um, as we would over here. On, uh, but I think that burnt into my memory because it was such a weird vision <laughs> such a weird image of seeing this this man in a cloak with bouffant white hair being attacked by people clonking you know the, the jingle of bells and the clonking of wood on wood as Rimmer says in Red Dwarf you know and, and they're, and they're um, yeah so that, that stayed with me for just being incredibly bizarre and then I remember a trip to the Natural History Museum when I was about ooh, probably about five with my school mm-hmm. And they had a dinosaur exhibit there. And at that point, uh, they had like a little TV screen on this exhibit where they were showing sort of dinosaurs in popular culture. And they showed that bit from Invasion of the Dinosaurs. The good grief, it's a stegosaurus and all this kind of stuff. And it's very, um, and that, and I remember looking at that thinking, oh, that, that, that looks pretty interesting, you know. But then it really, you know, Doctor Who really did come into my life when I was seven years old uh, and the TV movie was just about to air and that weekend I'd gone up to Warwickshire um, which is in the Midlands in the UK and we've had a you know a, a trip to my great grandmother's she lived in, in an old folks home and like you do when you're seven you know you don't really want to sit around and you know talk to old people <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds harsh but 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 when you're that age you, you look around for things to do when you're there so yeah. and I remember on the table there was that week's Radio Times that just sort of 
flopped open so that the centre page was sort of staring me in the face from this table. It's a bit like that that scene in Pulp Fiction when I open the box and that that gold light shines out. I mean, in, in my mind's eye, there <laughs> that magazine that magazine has gold light shimmering, almost like regenerative energy. You know, wow, uh, spawning out, out out of the top. And I remember looking into it, and it was this about sixteen page booklet stapled into the centrefold um, and it was called Doctor Who Return of a Time Lord mm-hmm. and it had all these floating heads these floating faces of these different people and I remember basically because I'd, I'd always had a bit of a of an interest in science fiction anyway of course you know I was brought up during the 90s when obviously Star Trek ruled the television um, sure, and you had things like Sliders and like I've already said Red Dwarf as well which I used to stay up and watch with my parents even though I probably shouldn't have done not at that age naughty naughty (laughs) but um, I pointed out to my dad and I said Doctor Who what's this and he said oh you know television show and everything I said well who's Doctor Who which one of these is Doctor Who and he said all of them and at that point I was like ooh okay that's intriguing and I think that whole weekend building up because it was on the bank holiday Monday that the TV movie was shown over here so I was in. I went to visit my great grandmother on the Saturday, and so I basically had forty-eight hours to brush up using just this uh, this booklet, <laughs> essentially. And by the end, by the end of the Sunday, I pretty much memorised how long Tom Baker had been in the role, how many episodes mm-hmm. William Hartnell had starred in, that the Moon Base was Patrick Troughton's, you know, highest story with regards to viewing figures in the UK, and it was all this kind of stuff. And I just completely. It submerged itself within me. And what do you think it was about it? Was it that there was this history that you could delve into, like you're, you're reading about the ancient Romans or something, you know, there's just all this material that you need to absorb and you're interested in, or was it something else that maybe just grabbed you? I think it was the history of the show because, I mean, by that point, there was eight different faces playing the same character, and you think, well, this is a bit different. Hmm. You know, this, this, this is something I can really get my teeth into looking at the pictures and trying to assemble, you know, what their personalities would be like just from looking at the picture, you know, and seeing a robot dog and thinking, oh, that's cool, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's, and the the, the monsters as well, I thought, obviously, like I said, you know, I'd seen Star Trek, but I think Star Trek, I mean, you, you can maybe list four, yeah, maybe four memorable sort of villains and aliens from the next generation with Doctor Who, you can probably list about 20, I reckon, yeah. <laughs> quite easily. Yeah. Um, so there was that as well. And, I mean, we, we did used to play um, Daleks in the in the playground. There used to be these little, like, wicker baskets that used to hold, like, tennis balls and other, other things that we could play, uh, like bean bags and whatnot. Like, tiny bean bags, sorry, not massive ones. Can you imagine seven-year-olds hurtling those? <laughs> so, yeah, and we used to, used to empty them, turn them up, and put them over our heads and just walk around with our arms out, go and exterminate, exterminate. And I never really knew what that meant because I, I think the older children did because obviously I, I was born in June 1989. Now, yeah. in June 1989, when I read it up, I think Survival was just going into recording. I think it was just going into, into production. They'd just finished Ghostlight and they were going in to record, obviously, the last ever episode. But the older kids who were maybe, you know, sort of two, three, well, no, maybe three or four years older who were obviously born 85, would 
remember bits of the Sylvester McCoy era, so they'd know who the Daleks were. That's right. Yeah. So you had the so you had the older kids were sort of playing it, and I was thinking, oh, you know, I'd like to get a bit more involved. I mean, this is quite fun putting a wicker basket on your head and running around saying exterminate, but I want to get to know this a little bit more. So I think it's the fact that there were little sort of nuggets in sort of the culture at my school that sort of got me into it, but it was mostly it, it was the history of the show. Yeah. Just a question that popped into my head while we're talking about the history of it. Um, did you feel the same way when you came across James Bond for the first time and then realised, oh, there have been other guys who have played this guy? I was so confused when I watched. <laughs> I think the first the first James Bond film I saw, I think, might have been Thunderball. Right. Um, and then the one that I saw afterwards was one of the Roger Moore films, and I thought what's going on here? You know? <laughs> why is he different? Why, why is nobody blinking? And I was like, it's, and obviously because it's all about spies, mm. you know, and uh, espionage, I thought this guy's a spy. No one's seen it yet. I, I thought maybe they'd sort of changed the, you know, Roger Moore had killed off Sean Connery and right. now he had assumed his role and everyone just thought he looked like him strangely. Um, no, I, I, I did for a while think that perhaps, you know, James Bond was a time Lord as well and regenerated, <laughs> Sean Connery bites the bullet literally at the end of Diamonds Are Forever and regenerates into Roger Moore and he staggers through Live and Let Die with, you know, post-regenerative trauma. But there you go. That would, that would explain a lot about that film. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, so to go back to Doctor Who, you're you're seven years old and the TV movie's coming out, which makes me feel positively ancient because I'd, I'd finished university at this point. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I have a habit of doing this when I'm on, you know, podcasts and things. I mean, I, I always, I have a habit of making people feel older than they actually are. So I, I know, but this oh, is why geez. I thought of you when it came to this topic, you see. You know, <laughs> I thought when it comes to this topic, the one person I want to talk to is Hayden. So here we are. So <laughs> you. you're you're seven years old going into this. I'm 21 years old going into this um, TV right. movie. Mm. And I think, you know, on the last episode of Who Wars that we did, Andy was talking about seeing the new Star Wars film and how he felt about it. And how he felt about it, he acknowledged, would be quite different to how he would have felt about it if he was eight years old or nine years old or whatever it might be. Mm. So mm. I've, I've got a feeling that we've probably come at this TV movie at quite different times of our lives and maybe experienced mm. it differently. So for you, when you've read this magazine, you've, you've brushed up on all your knowledge, you've watched the TV movie, what are you thinking after you've seen it? probably not as good as I'd built it up to be in my head. Really? To be perfectly honest, yeah. I was quite... It's funny because the the elements I liked back then are not necessarily the, the elements I like now. So the violence was a big thing. I mean, as a seven-year-old boy, I you know loved explosions and we always like, play-fighted in the playground and everything. And But I, I didn't like... Even though it was only implied in the edit when it went out here that the master had snapped Bruce's wife's neck, Mm -hmm. you could kind of imagine what had happened and your, your brain sort of fills in the blanks, you know, the missing frames. It's a bit like, you know, Janet Lee in, in the shower in psycho, Mm -hmm. you know, your mind tells you that, that you've seen the blade penetrate the skin, but actually it hasn't. It's just your mind's filling in the blanks. And that sort of happened for me. And I found that, that quite creepy, but at the same time, you know, in a rather morose way, quite cool. <laughs> and also, you know, the, the, the spitting of, 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 of the poisonous phlegm and, uh, you know, that acidic stuff that Grace gets on her arm. And, uh, and I actually, at the time, I didn't mind the romance element as well, because 
it's so integrated into you when you're watching TV as a kid that mm. there's always going to be a love interest. If you put a boy and a girl together in any sort of TV show at that time, you'd think, oh, you know, ooh, they might go off and get married. And I mean, I also liked the regeneration as well because I liked seeing this, you know, older doctor, this 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 previous doctor, and it, it felt quite special to watch my first regeneration in the very first you know live episode that I'd seen as such. Mm. But now, actually, I ha- I I really don't dislike all of their <laughs> all those elements. <laughs> so as I've got older, the things that I liked about it have changed. I mean, the one constant actually is that I thought Paul McGann was very good. Yeah. And I really, really liked Paul McGann. And I've, you know, I, I think I've, I've said to you before on um, when I interviewed you for our podcast, um, and I said I, I couldn't get into the EDAs. Um, well, it's different with Big Finish. Um, and actually reading back now, there's some Eighth Doctor books that I can read and, you know, that, that I, I do enjoy. But at the time, I thought, oh, this Doctor's great, but I couldn't get into him in through any other media. They used to do, around about that time, Radio Times used to do like a three or four panelled comic strip. Right. I think only ran for several weeks. I can't remember it being there for that long. And I, I didn't read them. Oh. Um, I, just, I, I kind of wanted to see this Doctor, you know, visually. Mm-hmm. I, I, I found it quite difficult. I enjoyed his adventures in... Uh, Doctor Who magazine in the comic strip but that was a little bit later on uh, so at this point I really liked this Doctor but I thought mm, I, I, I didn't feel like the show was going to come back I thought that was just a one off so I suppose it's quite anticlimactic as well Well, I guess what I was really in- no go on please uh, what I was really interested in was the seven other Doctors beforehand because I'd read up about them that weekend mm-hmm. So they, they were the ones that I thought, I'll make it my mission <laughs> to watch as much as I can. Well, that's, that's where I was going to go with my next question. So you've, you've watched this TV movie. You've, you've got mm. positive feelings about it in some ways and maybe not so positive feelings in others. What's the next step? Is it to go to your local library and grab some John Pertwee episodes? Is it to start reading Target novels? What, what's the next step for you as a younger person in the mid-90s? About a month or two later, I um, was taking. It's, oh, it's so haphazard this, but I basically I injured myself while taking part in the school sports day. Oh dear! And I had to, you know, go into. <laughs> it's such a Charlie Chaplin thing to do, but I had to go into hospital overnight. And when I came out, I, you know, bed rest or you know sofa rest for a couple of weeks before I went back to school and. Um, and that weekend, my grandparents came to visit me, and as a present, they brought me a video. You know, opened the packaging, saw the video, it was a Doctor Who video, and it was Snake Dance, which isn't a very conventional episode or story, sorry, to watch. Not at all. As your first, as your first sort of entrance into the classic era. But the thing that surprised me the most was the theme tune. Okay. The theme tune, I hadn't taken much notice, I, I don't think, back when I'd seen a TV movie a couple of months previously. But when I listened to the theme tune, um, you know, that, that Peter Howell version, mm-hmm. it really, really grabbed me. And I absolutely adored, and to this day, I, I love the outro to um, the Peter Howell imagining as such, with, you know, the middle eight when it goes very sort of twinkly and very, you know, sort of euphoric. And yeah. it, I, I really, really liked that. And that grabbed me, but I think it was... So I think it was that. I also think Peter Davison, because... He was quite a relatable doctor because he was, you know, quite a young guy. So he was 
you know, slightly closer to my age. So he was a bit like an older brother. I know it's been said before, but in that story, I felt like he was an older brother and he was an older brother to me and also to Nissa and Tegan. Dare I say he's a bit like McGann as well. If if McGann's been the the doctor you've seen the most of at that point, I think out of all the classic doctors, he's probably the closest to a McGann. Yes, yes, he is. Yeah, so there's a slight relation there, not not so much to their age, but also because I think they showed a bit of vulnerability in you know, all throughout Davison's era, and of course hmm. McGann in the TV movie as well. You know, he is fallible, so I I liked that and these hints that the Doctor hadn't quite defeated this whatever this Mara thing was in the past, and now it come back to haunt his companion. To the point that I thought, oh, you know, is Tegan a companion who you can trust? Right. You know, Interesting. Can you actually, you know, so if, if I picked up another Davison video, would I be reading through and thinking, you know, Tegan's at some point is going to snap again and try and kill the Doctor? Of course, that never happened, and then they nearly buggered it up with Turlo. But anyway, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's it, really. But um, no, so it, it, it was that video. And then, and I don't think I had any other Doctor Who-related merchandise i think probably until christmas i think 96 was quite a slow year mm-hmm. getting off the ground and then I, I got the android invasion on video and then very soon afterwards got the green death and i think i think it was with the green death that i really started seeing you know this mythology come to life you know it's the it's the doctor it's the giant maggots it's joe grant it's units and to this day, it's, it's still one of my favorite classic stories and then after that it really kicked off you know i started seeing Doctor Who. It's a bit like I'd, I'd had a perception filter on. A bit like I had, I had that, you know, the, these, these Doctor Who books and, you know, videos and merchandise had the TARDIS key on there and I couldn't quite see them. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden I started spotting Doctor Who in the shops. I started spotting books. I started spotting videos. But of course, I mean, over here uh, in the 90s, the only way to watch Doctor Who regularly was if you had satellite television. Right. So if you had, I mean, it was on a channel called UK Gold. And we didn't have that, so I mean, I used to, I used to occasionally, you know, throw a bit of a paddy and you know, say, oh, I, I, I can see, you know, Doctor Who's going to be on, but there's no way of recording it, and oh. you know, there, there was an occasion where I literally thought that I was never going to see the Three Doctors because I'd missed it. I guess it wasn't it was out quite, on video at that point, perhaps. Well, I mean, with because I didn't have the disposable income, oh, of I was really relying on you know, birthdays and Christmases, basically, for my fix. Um, the only pocket money I got covered, I think probably in a month, covered two or three Beano comic books, uh, sorry, comics, and also um, DWM. And DWM actually sort of, it sort of fed me more of this addiction that I was slowly giving into because mm. I remember the first the first DWM issue that I got had an article in there saying, and it was called 20 Moments When You Realise You're Watching the Greatest Television Show Ever. I think it was something like that. I might have tweaked that, that title a bit. <laughs> and seeing the, these, these little telly snaps of stuff like Tom Baker's Regeneration right. and, you know, Sylvester McCoy in The Happiness Patrol saying, throw your gun away. You know, that very first scene aboard the TARDIS in An Unearthly Child and all this stuff. And it was mm-hmm. it was incredible. And just thinking, I really did, I, I really did make it my mission to seek out as much of this as I could with varying degrees of success. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask, you know, when you're starting to, to pick up more and more of these videos, what sort of supplemental material you might have had, whether it was a reference guide or something, 
but uh, it sounds like Doctor Who magazine was filling that role. And mm. it, it was similar for me too. I remember I th- always say my first step into fandom was buying Doctor Who magazine number 119 has Perry on the cover in a yellow striped blazer with the longer hair from Trial of a Time Lord. And although I'd watched Doctor Who and discussed it with my older brother many years prior to that, I think that December 1986 issue and the ones that came after is what really fed and sort of educated me. Um, Mm. There were reference books as well, uh, a particular Peter Haining book called Doctor Who A Celebration. Yeah. Uh, So I guess for you, was it it just the magazine or did you pick up a reference book here and there to sort of just flesh out and sort of understand what other episodes were out there or did Target novels start to come into the equation at this point? Oh, definitely reference books to start off with. We had a news agent, and it, it, it occasionally sold books, but it was always books that were sort of out of date by two or three years. And I picked up the Doctor Who yearbook, which I think was for the 1995, because I remember that it, the very last sort of paragraph in the book, it was talking about this this film that was com- that was coming up. And uh, obviously that, that, that being a TV movie, but looking through and seeing just which stories corresponded with which Doctor. And I, I didn't really read the text as such. I mean, it had had a couple of um, of comic book stories in there. One, one with Beat the Meep, I seem to remember. These yearbooks, as I recall them, were sort of the 90s version of the old annuals. Am I remembering them correctly? You are, yeah. I mean, this yearbook as such, I've actually got it in my hands now. Um, it was more, it, it centred more on the sort of the production side of things. So you'd, you'd have like a about half a page taken up with all the details for each season. So what serial number it was, what the episode, what the story was called, how many episodes it had, when it was in production, you know, transmission dates. So for someone like me with a slightly, you know, almost a slightly autistic mind, I completely <laughs> drank this up. I really did. And, you know, seeing what the working titles for things were. And I remember the text saying the second doctor was given a baptism of fire in the power of the Daleks. And I thought, well, that, that doesn't sound very nice. Not obviously <laughs> realising what that saying meant. So course, it was quite, yeah, but it was no, it, it was utterly incredible. And also, you know, seeing these pictures and everything looked, I mean, to quote the show, it, it all looked ancient and forever. Mm. Yeah. It looked so otherworldly. I mean, even the pictures taken from, you know, like season 25 that they showed, it's quite, it's already looking dated, but that gives it a very intriguing edge, I found, you know, and I, I really, 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 really wanted to, you know, watch as many of these episodes as I could. And I actually had, um, I used to go to a shop called The Bookworm, mm-hmm. uh, which was on on the South Coast, where my grandparents lived, and they'd, you know, they'd granddad would take me in there give me like a pound to go and buy you know some target books after we'd found them and I remember the first one I had was Image of the Fendal and I don't actually remember reading that but I do remember reading <laughs> and latching on to uh, Doctor Who and the Cybermen right and really loving that novelization and, and then actually thinking well this is a much more affordable way of me you know, sort of filling in these blanks. I, I literally had a checklist where, you know, after getting the yearbook, I'd, you know, I'd write down the stories and which Doctor, you know, who was in them and which companions were in them and, and literally just tick them off as I went um, after I, I'd read the book or, you know, seen the videos. The, the, the video collection grew over a few years to, I reckon I probably had about 30 stories. Wow, yeah. At one point, which I suppose actually isn't too bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> it was... 
Yeah, I mean, birth, so birthday presents, birthday money, and Christmas money, and Christmas presents, I suppose. So these are really the only things I'd I'd really spend on. Um, other, you know, there were distractions. Um, big football fan, but also the Star Wars special editions came out in 97. That's right. So for that summer, um, especially because it was over my birthday, for that summer, I really was a Star Wars head. Yeah, definitely. But I think for the rest of the time, I mean, because that because because that was only three films. Um, it's amazing to think actually, there's been four since then. It is, which is quite incredible. But because there were only three films, and I could sort of go back and revisit them as and when Doctor Who. Yeah, that that felt quite complete to me, but Doctor Who didn't. So imagine how I felt when I first found out that there were missing episodes. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. Very, very bad. Well, you know, this this does tie back to what I was talking about earlier in the conversation about growing up with Star Wars, for example. And Star Wars, even from 1977 onwards, had amazing effects and had a lot of money spent on it. And Doctor Mm. Who never did. So how do you think you reconcile that in in your mind, watching, on one hand, Star Wars and and all of that great stuff in in there, and then watching a Doctor Who episode where the set's wobbling or it just looks... (laughs) terrible you know i as i said i used to love it but i'd be embarrassed to show my friends how did you feel about it as a as a fan well i always thought if my friends were interested in star wars then that would be a window into introducing them to doctor who because it was science fiction uh you know exactly the same as star wars and i know that you know doctor who never did the you know the dog fights in space and like you said you know the stunning visual effects but what doctor who did have was character and it had plot and it had story and it had intrigue as well. I mean, one of the things that really captured me was when I started watching the black and white stories because it was so different. I mean, you didn't really, un- unless you watched early morning reruns of stuff like the Munsters or I remember Flash Gordon, the, the old 1930s series of that or, or Laurel and Hardy. Um, you didn't see anything else that was black and white. Black and white was really frowned upon actually, I think in the nineties well, they're I trying to colorize it all the time. They were that embarrassed about it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Not, not Doctor so, Who specifically, but in in general, <laughs> you know, Hollywood was trying to color movies all the time. It was yeah. weird. But the but the fact that Doctor Who was also in color meant there was this entirely different, you know, otherworldly feel to it. I always felt like the black and white episodes felt a bit more filmic. Mm-hmm. And I thought they held a little bit of an advantage over, let's say, stuff you know from the early seventies. Let's say, like the early John Pertwee episodes. You know, I'm sort of talking to think, you know, like Terror of the Autons and that mm. that kind of thing. But but honestly, when I used to watch Doctor Who, I never really looked at the visual effects. I was always invested in the characterization of these you know these brilliant people. You know, you you, you got this man who, well, unless you you know. <laughs> you um, see John Pertwee, you know, kicking ass in the Green Death. Um, <laughs> you think he he's not a very violent person. He seems to he seems to get by using words as weapons, not mm. you know, not guns or knives or anything like that. So I found that quite inspiring, and I really really liked that. And it was just also the fact that these people who you were watching, you could kind of look up to. Yeah, I think. I mean, you could never really associate with the Doctor. The Doctor was so otherworldly. But the companions, you really could. You could invest in them. You you could follow the story through them, um, and then you know be safe in the knowledge that you're going to get back in that you know wonderful 
type 40 TARDIS you know, by the end mm. of it. So it's quite, you know, I, I was, I'd never really looked at it visual effects. wise. My parents used to you know, sort of laugh at it when I, when they'd watch, you know, because obviously I didn't have a TV. I was too young to have a TV in my bedroom. And I don't think we had a video player in the TV in my parents' room. So the only way I could watch Doctor Who was if I'd asked to watch, you know, a whole story for like an hour and a half, you know, two hours on a on a weekend. It's but, interesting. Uh, I, I was just yeah. going to say, I, you mentioned the black and white era f- feeling filmic. And I'm just thinking about some episodes in my head. And I think the black and white hides a lot of problems where if they're, if those episodes are in colour, they might not look as good. Mm. And I think of when they might go on location in the black and white era. I think of, is it the invasion where they're being chased around by cops in Jaguar police cars or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's in black and white and it looks so cool. But mm. if that was in colour, would it look as cool? It might not, <laughs> you know? No, 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 certainly not. I mean, I actually, one of the episodes, even though I... I didn't feel like I could relate to, to this doctor, but you know my grandparents really admired him. I really, really liked the war machines. What, watching something like like that, you know, about computers linking up all around the world and then taking over. I was thinking, oh, we've just got the internet at school. Yeah, hang on, this this is a bit relatable. And I really, really loved that. And I remember seeing those location shots of the war machine going around, you know, killing the man in the phone booth, and uh, you know the doctor and Ben and those those sort of like that. that what I like to call the prototype unit soldiers that they're with in that episode, um, you know, trying to capture it in that, in that strange, um, like roped off ring that they make, you know, <laughs> but it, it was, it was, it was really, really good. I really, really enjoyed it. And actually I used to show it to my friends. I used to show, if I had a friend come over, he'd say, Oh, look, can we just watch one episode? You know? And the one that really grabs not just me, but a, you know, a whole host of us was I had a birthday party where, I showed them episode two of the Abominable Snowmen, okay, which looked brilliant. And even though it, it was an, it was a very damaged print, I mean, I can't believe just how well the restoration team have done to you know spruce that up over oh, time. But um, but to watch that and to watch you know a Yeti, you know straight straight away you're in the action. You know you've got Jamie knocking down the stanchion. You got you know the, the rocks falling on the Yeti, but it gets back up. This thing's indestructible, and it's. It's a brilliant episode, brilliant, brilliant episode, and they all loved it. So, I'd, you know, my peers weren't affected by it being in black and white, or you know, when they're when they're trying to capture the Yeti and they're they're just basically hitting a man in a costume with sticks, you know, and trying to make it look really heavy and try and make it look really dramatic. Mm-hmm. It's um, you know, no, we 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 absolutely loved it. We really did. It was um, uh, I mean, unfortunately for me, they all tended you know, to forget about it the next, you know, sort of the next week Mm. at school when we spoke. But I I did always feel a little bit, I don't know, no one was ever as much of a big fan as I was when I was at school. Right. They'd sort of watch it with me and I used to do this thing, this, this, oh, this isn't, this is terribly embarrassing, but I'm... Oh, do tell. But I'll mention it. I used to have a burgundy dressing gown. Right, and when I watched Doctor Who, I'd put the burgundy dressing gown on, yes. take the belt out, and put it round my neck so it looks like the Fourth Doctor from season eighteen. Ah, oh, that's sweet. That is sweet. That's it's amazing that I've ever had a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she knows that. <laughs> she does now. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh look, we've all been there in in the early days of my fandom when I was in the local club. We uh, we made a fan film, 
and they cast me as the as the fifth doctor and oh, wow. um they're going to explain it somehow they're going to take part of a fifth doctor episode and then pretend he got zapped and then turned into me somehow it was it was quite strange uh <laughs> so look dressing up and pretending to be the doctor yeah we've we've all been there <laughs> and, and if we say we haven't we're lying that sounds like an amateur dramatics adaptation of seven keys to doomsday there it does in a way, doesn't it? <laughs> I wonder if that's where the person who wrote it got the idea from now that I think about it. Hmm. Directed by Terry Ma- Tony Martin? Something like that, yeah. Oh, oh, that's terrible. I'm shaming myself there. Well, but, well, the, um, the fellow who wrote this script for our local group now now actually works in television, so I might, <laughs> I oh, might wow. go and put that to him. <laughs> um, Okay. Now, we were talking about the Target novels, and we are also talking about how you enjoyed in the episode, you're watching the characterizations and, and such, you know, in, in lieu of big special effects and things like that. Do you think, and this may have come up in your Target episode of Diddly Dumb as well, do you think reading the Target novels actually enhanced those TV episodes maybe even to the point where you thought the TV episodes were better than they were simply because you knew the story so well through the target novel and you knew the characters so well and you weren't relying on sort of B-grade actors at times just on the screen. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I completely agree. Um, something like the Cybermen novelization, which I, I said, you know, which I brought up before, I brought the Cybermen the early years, VHS, and watched those two episodes, you know, the episodes two and four that, unfortunately are the only two that have survived mm. but i already knew the plot so well that i knew what was coming up but i wanted to see and i was intrigued at how it compared so it was comparing and contrasting i remember reading about the dinosaur in doctor who and the cave monsters and thinking oh this is going to be incredible you know that and then seeing it on tv when it's a cso <laughs> man in a costume and thinking oh okay never did it dampen though it only ever enhanced i think yeah I mean, earlier in this chat, you were talking about seeing Pertwee accosted by Morris dancers. And for <laughs> those not in the know out there, that's a scene from um, The Demons. <laughs> Ironically, nothing to do with the show. It was just, <laughs> I was just walking past a park. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now you're making me lose my train of thought. No. Sorry. Uh, that's, that's quite okay. And with, with The Demons, I read that first as a book, as the target novel. And right. I thought it was amazing, you know, because I was only, I don't know, 10 or 11 at the time. So I'm reading about, you know, these dark satanic type powers and all this stuff that's happening and, you know, digging up this uh, this place in the dead of night and the TV crews there. And, oh, man, I thought this was just amazing. And then when I saw mm. the episode, which I know a lot of people don't rate, and even this past weekend on J.R. Southall's um, Facebook wall, people are saying how much they don't rate the, the demons at all. But... We first saw that in our little local club as a black and white, because at the time, not all of the episodes were available in colour, so it was screened on mm. Australian TV entirely in black and white. Oh, my word. So I knew this story inside out, and I was watching it in scary black and white. I thought it was brilliant. And even yeah. even now, watching it in colour in the modern day, without having read the novel for years, I still really, really love the demons and i think it's because I, I kicked it off by reading the target novel first mm. 
they can certainly elevate certain stories. I mean, we spoke about this. I mean, take something like Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon is far better than Colony in Space. Yeah. Um, I can't really think... I think when it got to the later books, um, stuff like, you know, Earthshock and The Visitation, I remember reading them and thinking, no, I'm not entirely sure about these. And then all of a sudden... Seeing the you know seeing the actual televised stories and thinking these are miles better. I, I I think those earlier books had more detail, and they expanded on those on those worlds a hell of a lot more. You know right. fourfold. Um, but when it came to the later books, un- until I reckon probably you're going to say like the, Remembrance of the Daleks or something. I was actually yeah, and I was mm. also trying to think of the um, what's the second. Oh, the second Daleks Master Plan novelization, the, the the mutation of time. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, when it got so the later Target books sort of picked up again, but they they sort of sort of early to mid eighties they they did dwindle a bit. I found that, but then but then I found the stories more enjoyable as a consequence. So it was a win win really. If if the book wasn't that good, then the story would be better, and if the book was really good, then it only enhanced what I saw when I finally saw the televised version. That's right. Okay, now we're talking about collecting the VHS uh, stories, and you got around 30 you mentioned. Yeah. What, what happened when DVD came along? Did you go, oh, my God, I'm <laughs> going to have to replace all of these? Or did you see the benefits of DVD? Did you see the, the commentaries and the, you know, the uh, little documentaries, although they were a bit thin on the ground at first, but then they started to really make some great stuff. Did you get mm. into collecting the DVDs and flogging off your VHS? Or, or what happened in that sort of, I guess that's probably really late 90s, but probably early 2000s? Well, it sort of happened in my own personal wilderness years, I'd have to say. Um, Ooh, tell me more. Doctor Who, I, around about sort of late 2000, my, my youngest sister had been born and I was you know, facing a few life changes, new sister, mm. new school coming up as well. Um, and I remember as a present from my parents, you know, for, you know how, how good myself and my sister had been, they brought us VHS and I, they actually bought me The Invasion of Time. And I really disliked it. It was the first time that I had actually... Out of all these Doctor Who VHSs that I had, it was the first one that I watched and thought, no, I don't like this. And around that time, because I had so many changes going on, I sort of moved away from Doctor Who. And I think the, the, I think one of the reasons is, is when you're a teenager, you're so desperate to, you know, fit in with your peers. You mm-hmm. conform. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, things like, like Doctor Who and Beano and all the rest of it were out of the door. And, you know, hair gel, um, <laughs> Linkin Park hoodies and chains you know from our jeans were sort of in and that sort of replaced everything i think i was 15 we had a um we had a break at school uh for to do work experience and you know i was just working in in a shop for a couple of weeks during that lunch period i went out and uh went to the local hmv and in there i saw that the five doctors special edition dvd was on i think it's like a 10 or something like that so i bought that and that sort of reawakened it for me but the dvds i must admit I, I haven't really i hadn't really been collecting them until i started writing for celestial toy room mm-hmm. i sort of bought them bit by bit you know brought a few a few troutons that i liked and a few tom baker and davisons and all the rest of it but i thought to myself well if i've got them on video then i'll just wait until these things come down in price yeah. you know being a, a freelance writer for five years until last last April I'd say meant that I could only really buy these things as and when but 
slowly over time, I did build up that collection. Um, there are now I've got them all. <laughs> so, but it was a real slow burner. I I can see the benefits now. Um, the way you can really see it is in the location shoots, where they've really spruced them. I mean, take something like I've spoken about Davison a lot today, but something like Black Orchid, that location uh, filming for the cricket match. If you compare that to how it looks on VHS, it's, in, it's staggering now what they've done, and I do, and I, I do prefer the DVD versions as a, you know, as a consequence because they they look so good. But but I think I've I've appreciated them more as an adult. I think as a teenager, I just felt like you know replenishing here and there. And mm. in the end, I, I did get rid of my VHS collection. I've only kept ooh, maybe two or three, I reckon. Yeah, were, uh, were they sentimental ones for you or? I kept the oh, I kept more than thirty years in the TARDIS for sentimental value. I kept the Hand of Fear for monetary value, <laughs> value because that's such a rare one. And I've also kept I think it's the Pertwee Years video, which of course does have the demons on there in in black and white. But anyway, it's um, it was over time. But yes, there, there was a few years where I really didn't. Doctor Who just just didn't do it for me, I'm afraid to say. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when it came back in 2005, it awoke everything again, mm-hmm. and especially the build-up to it. And you know, those memories of you know being a kid, lying on the ground, eating sweets, and you know flicking through that 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 yearbook and you know creating lists and yeah, yeah all came flooding back. Oh, nice. Just while we're on the topic of DVDs, I've I've recently finished the set too. I was very. Um slow in finishing it can you recall the final disc or discs you bought to finish your collection ah because <laughs> i can tell you right. what mine was okay. because i've only just done okay. it and it was the canine yep. tales box set of uh, oh K- yes canine and company and the invisible enemy <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was that was the final discs i bought to finish <laughs> um i'd have to say i mean that i had a few missing and i bought uh, i think it was terror of the zygons uh, which is one of my favourite all-time Doctor Who stories. Ah, oh, The Underwater Menace, of course. And the third was something like, I think it was Planet of Giants. Ah, uh, yep. Thinking about it. So, yeah, so it was just, uh, it was you know, like a Black Friday sale, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Planet of Giants was towards the bottom of my list as well, I must say. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, it was canny of to entertain to leave Terror of the Zygons until one of the very last mm. considering the reputation that that has got of being you know, such a classic story um, but the other two I you know, could have taken or, or left really what did you think actually about the um, the Underwater Menace reconstructions oh could have been better I mean but you're not dealing with great source material to begin with so mm. you know, I wasn't expecting a whole lot going into it. I mean, they could have recreated it with um, Disney quality CGI and in color, and it probably wouldn't have helped a whole lot. So you know, <laughs> uh, it, to me, it is what it is. It's a it's an artifact. Yeah. It helps you get a sense of the story, but um, yeah, it's never yeah. going to be in my top ten or twenty or thirty or forty hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, let, let's move into some more generic questions because I think we've got a good feel for how you've come to the, the series and you've had your wilderness years. And I must admit, yeah. I had some too when I hit about my mid-teens. I think mm. we all we all do to some degree. Yeah. What doctor did you first gravitate towards and has that stayed the same or has that changed over time? I reckon it's probably changed. 
changed over time, I reckon. I mean, because my mum was such a big fan of his, I think she tended to buy me the Pertwee stories more. And because John Pertwee, like I said, you know, knew him as Wurzel Gummidge, you kind of already, you already felt safe in his company because he was already, a, you know, a, a face who you recognised. But actually, someone who, who grabbed me very early on and is still to this day my favourite doctor is Patrick Troughton. He's the naughty uncle. You know, he's the man who could stand at the back of a crowded room, but your eyes would still gravitate towards him. Mm. And you can see the cogs whirring in his mind. You know, he might be acting the buffoon, but actually he's the most dangerous and, you know, devastatingly brilliant man in, you know, there. It's the rapport between him and Jamie as well. And these these little fragments that I had, I mean, actually, J.R. Southall once said to me that, I, I prob well, he, he thought that I probably saw Patrick Troughton as the Wizard of Oz because he's not quite there. You know, he, he's, he's that mm. myth. He, he's the one who, unfortunately, still has so many missing episodes. So he's that person who, you know, that they, you, you've seen bits of and you want to see more, but you can't, mm. you know, or you've heard of. And back then, I mean, I had... Like I said, I had the Troughton years and I had Cybermen uh, in the early years, the Ice Warriors box set as well, which I, which I loved. I think were probably... Oh, and The Invasion, actually. Yeah, The Invasion as well. I think they were probably the only four Troughton stories I had. But DWM back then used to run a thing called the Telesnap Archive. Yeah. So I used to cut those pages out and put them in ring binders which I've probably still got somewhere, actually. But I used to put them in ring binders and I, so I could flick through and I could actually, you know, look and read through stuff like The Evil of the Daleks and The Enemy of the World and yeah. and really get more of, of a feel. But Patrick Troughton always felt like a safe pair of hands. And I just think he, he struck that balance brilliantly between funny, sad, happy, you know, scary as well, actually, in some cases. That scene in the moon base right towards the end when he's saying, oh, you know, did, did you search, you said you, you said you searched the whole base, every nook and cranny, he goes, did your men search in here? Yeah. Like, I was thinking, oh, hang on a minute, like, uh, oh dear. <laughs> Great character actor. Uh, yes, oh, brilliant, brilliant. And actually, I still think probably the best actor to play the Doctor, in my opinion. But I mean, the, the other one, I mean, I, I loved, once again, felt like a naughty uncle, was Tom Baker. Yeah. I think, those two were the ones who I loved the most. I mean, Peter, I think probably Doctors 2 through to 5 were the ones that I liked the most. I always felt there was a bit more of continuity when it came to people like Baker and Davison because I'd get the videos that it would be a story that followed a story. So I'd get something like Revenge of the Sidemen, then Zygons, then Planet of Evil, and yeah. you know something like Resurrection, Planet Fire, and Caves of Androzani, that, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So then you had a bit of continuation there. Pertwee and Troughton were a bit more fragmented, but... I think early on I liked Pertwee, but I really, as soon as I saw more Troughton, I thought, no, this guy, yeah, he's the governor. Yeah. Does does picking Troughton in that role also inform where your favourite companion comes from? Is it from his era, or, or do you just go really left field when it comes to favourite companion? No, 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 not, not at all. I think it, it's definitely Jamie. Right. Because of, and it's, I think really it's, it boils down to the fact that they were just so good together on screen. They're so telepathic. You know, they, they know what one another's thinking mm. on screen, Troughton and Hines, you know. Um, and it makes for a fantastic duo. I think even though you've got Zoe and Victoria there, you could really, you know, you could 
you you could go you could watch Doctor and Jamie all day. You know, there wouldn't need to be a third companion there. They're just so good. I actually I, I really liked Sarah Jane Smith as well, and I really liked Harry Sullivan as well. I used to bemoan the fact that you know he starred in so few stories. I really would have loved to have seen you know more Fourth Doctor Sarah and Harry. Um, I think they were probably you know I think those two Doctors. And those two TARDIS teams that I just mentioned are probably, to this day, still my favourite, I'd have to say. I think Matt Smith and Karen Gillan and Arthur Darville are a close third. Mm-hmm. But I think those two are, are the top brackets. And they're just, you know, I remember actually watching Zygons for the first time and you've seen the oil rig explode, you know, after yeah. the Scarrisons attacked it. And then it, it just switches to Tom... Baker and you know Liz Sladen and Ian Martyr walking through that bush and Tom Tom Baker's wearing you know the Scottish Highland stuff and mm-hmm. Sarah Jane Smith's wearing his hat and Harry's wearing his scarf and you just think and I just remember smiling thinking oh okay no and that, that music as well is just lovely yeah. lovely music a, la- a landing in Scotland I love that so yeah I mean I, I suppose the, the the companions that I really adore have been informed I suppose by the doctors that they were with but they're just so good yeah, yeah. All right, look, to, to round things out here, what would your advice be for someone, young or old, it could be someone who's old but never watched the classic era, and they want to dip their toe in it, where would you advise they start? I guess there's no right or wrong answer here, but where, where would you advise they start? I think if you've, if you've watched the new series and you like, let's say, an alien or a monster, then I'd go back and see just how they started out in the classic series. Mm-hmm. So if you like, let's say, the Silurians, for example, then go and start with Doctor Who and the Silurians. If you like the Autons, then start with Spearhead from Space. If you like the Daleks, go back and watch Genesis. You know, I, 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 the Cybermen, I would probably say for them, Earthshock. I wouldn't actually, you know, I wouldn't advise going back and watching Black and White mm-hmm. because I know for... For my generation, there's still a little bit of stigma about black and white. Um, my girlfriend really doesn't doesn't like it watching anything in black and white. It's just a, it seems to be for that tail end of Generation X to see it as being old and a little bit naff because it's not in colour. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say start with something colourful. Start with something you know, Pertwee or Baker era, and start with something that you already know. But go and seek out the origins. Interesting. And see how the how that character or that race developed. You see, if I was mm-hmm. asking myself that question, if someone liked Daleks, perhaps, I might send them back to, say, Remembrance. Yeah. Or Remembrance, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, I was thinking, because because of The Witch's Apprentice and The the, uh, the Witch's Familiar, because you had the, you know, Davros there, and the origin of, of him in that story... It now works as a counterplot for Genesis because you've got the Genesis of the Daleks, mm. obviously, in that story, but also Davros as the complete, you know, Davros in, in his prime coming up with those creations. So those two can kind of pivot. So I, 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 the reason why I went for Genesis was because it links in with a very, you know, recent episode. But Remembrance is brilliant as well. So, I'd, yeah. I've got, I've got no quarrel with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the McCoy era got slagged at the time and still gets slagged by some people now, but it has that slightly more modern sort of sensibility about it that can sometimes mm. just bridge things a bit for a fan. I, I feel, you know, mm. the, the further you go back in Doctor Who, it's very much like they're acting a play and there's just someone sitting up in the TV centre, you know, flicking between cameras as they just act out a play. 
Mm. Um, whereas, you know, something like Remembrance has a bit more of a modern feel to it. When you get to something like Survival in the yeah. McCoy era, it, it's it's urban. He's walking down a street. He's in a little shop. He's yeah. feeding a cat. You know, it's like it's, yeah. it's almost a prototype for New Who. Yeah. And actually, you know, Sylvester McCoy, Sophie Aldred, the, the whole sort of Andrew Cartmel era, its reputation has improved so much because it is that bridge. Mm. I mean, back in the day when I was a kid, Sylvester McCoy was seen as being the worst doctor. I suppose that went hand in hand with the fact that, you know, the this, this show had been cancelled under his tenure. But actually now you've got a, a lot of children. I know I know, because my sister, you know, is now, what, nearly 16. And some of her, her friends have watched the McCoy and love Ace. Yeah. You know, and they see a doctor who... You know, this little man with the umbrella, this intriguing entity, you know, it walk, like I said, walks down the urban street and looks slightly out of place but can own it. You know, I, I think I think that McCoy era has definitely got better. It's like a fine wine. That mm. has got better with age. <laughs> Def- definitely has. Definitely has. All right. Now, where can people find you online? We've mentioned the Diddly Dumb podcast, but where, where can people find you if they want to hunt out some more Hayden? Uh, you can find me at www.haydengribble.co.uk. Uh, I've also got an author page on Facebook, which is just facebook.com forward slash Hayden Gribble author, and also soundcloud.com forward slash Hayden Gribble, where you can find Doctor Who's short story, uh, which I wrote. <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, there's a few other sort of Doctor Who projects coming up very soon, so I'll have to, I'll have to keep you noted. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show and helping me understand how a young person gets into the classic era. It's, it's you know, been eating away at me for a few months now. Absolutely fine. Anytime. Anytime. I'm just, I'm just worried about your phone tariff now. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll figure something out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll figure something out. Thank you Brilliant. again, Hayden. Cheers. No problem. Thank you.